There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Plus. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Hi, Brian. Hi, Katie. You know, a lot of people are called a force of nature. But when it comes to our guest today, I think that really fits. Tony Robbins, I mean... Talk about sucking all the oxygen out of the room in a good way. He is bigger than life in every sense. He's he, like six seven. He's maybe 250 pounds of uh, pure bodybuilding. <laughs> he makes me feel like less of a man than anyone with whom I've ever spoken. But he's extraordinary. And for somebody who grew up watching him do infomercials, it's interesting to see how his career has evolved to being kind of an elite coach to CEOs, even presidents of the United States. I mean, he's a best-selling author. He's an entrepreneur. He's a philanthropist. And given his childhood, it's fascinating how that really motivated him to achieve everything he's done, which makes us feel like pikers pretty much, right, Brian? <laughs> yeah, I'm a real underachiever in comparison. But uh, as you'll hear in the interview, he grew up under some pretty tough circumstances and overcame quite a lot. Never went to college, self-taught, became a guru to everybody from Bill Clinton to Mark Benioff to Mother Teresa. I can't believe everything he's achieved, Brian, at 57, and there's still so much more he wants to do. And I don't know about you, I have no doubt that he will do it. (laughs) And in addition to being a a self-help titan, he's involved in 31 businesses. He generates annual sales, he says, in excess of $5 billion. He's built an empire. So here's Tony Robbins. And by the way, he's a very enthusiastic guest. So that sound you hear is Tony's hands, his big hands, hitting the table here. (laughs) No subtext there. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Hitting the table for emphasis. So you're not crazy if you hear that. Thank you for stopping by our little studio. Are you kidding? It's my pleasure. And Brian is here with me. And we were talking about your extraordinary career. I mean, I don't know. How how do you describe yourself? Because I know how your press materials do. <laughs> I'm a, you know, I'm a peak performance coach. I'm a consultant for people. But, you know, I'm also an entrepreneur and a philanthropist. You know, a big part of my life today 
is besides helping people in events and things of that nature, I have 31 companies. So uh, they're in very different industries. You know, I'm everything from, I have a unique opportunity to do some, some of the best stem cell work in the world while simultaneously we've got virtual reality, the exclusive with the NBA. So, you know, you see Monday night football, we're having Tuesday night NBA. We have the exclusive with Live Nation. So we have, I have about 1,200 employees across four continents. We do 5 billion in sales each year. And then I have my day job, which is about 75% of my time because I love it so much, which is helping people improve their lives. And then philanthropy-wise, you know, I'm feeding 100 million people a year now. I've done that for two years in a row. I'm going to feed a billion people over the next eight years. And it's not because I'm such a good guy. It's just when I was 11 years old, we had no money and no food on Thanksgiving. And a man came to the door and delivered food. And my father did not respond well to it, but I did. My dad always said, strangers don't care. And I think the biggest impact for me was not just that there was food, but the fact that I had evidence that strangers cared about my family and it made me, it shifted me to really care about strangers. So I promised myself I'd feed people when I got to 17. I fed two families and the next year four and I eventually got to a million, two million. And I fed four million people a year for about eight years and then two million myself and two million through my foundation. So I thought I fed 42 million in a lifetime. What if I had 50 million this year? And then I got excited, made it 100 million, and I got Feeding America to be my partner, and they deliver. I mean, their efficiency is amazing. Jeez. So we've partnered. So we're going to feed a billion people, and then the numbers we're getting should provide an ongoing 100 million new meals per year ongoing from there on. Can I just say I give up? I feel so lazy <laughs> and useless after just hearing that what are you answer. You're talking about a lifetime I, I, of helping people. I think people. we should just, you know. <laughs> You've had a lifetime of helping I'm people. Not what are you really, talking about? But yes, wow, you this is really impressive. Now, well, you talked about growing up in a tough environment, and you did. Your dad left, as I understand, when you were very I young. I had four fathers. So yes, they all left. <laughs> your mom was quite abusive. In fact, you left home when you were 17, when your mom came after you with a knife. Can yeah. you describe how that upbringing kind of shaped the man you've become since then? I never talked about my mom when she's alive. I didn't, you know, I still love her to this day. She, if she'd been the mother that I wanted her to be, I wouldn't be the man I'm proud to be. Um, because the fact that I suffered so much, I mean, she would, uh, she was addicted to, you know, uh, prescription drugs and alcohol and the mix is not a good mix. And she got very violent and I have a younger brother and younger sister, five and seven years younger. So for me, I had to become a practical psychologist just to figure out how to keep her in control and not hurt them, much less hurt me. And so I really, really grew as a result of that. I mean, I, I have suffered so much that I don't want to see any human suffer. And I became obsessed with finding answers to how to help people end their suffering, how to have them have the beauty that they want for their life. And it just turned into a 40-year enterprise, uh, you know, and I've had the privilege of living in a time where, you know, I go to 12, 13 countries a year. I see a quarter of a million people live. I mean, you couldn't have done that, you know, 50 years ago. You but know, Tony, you know, I, I think that kind of childhood experience would have destroyed so many people. What was it about you and about sort of your psyche, your constitution, your outlook on life that you were able to turn it into something so positive? I'm sure you've examined that. I have. I think that what saved me was reading. Um, I, I Early in my life, I got exposed to personal improvement and personal development and I took a speed reading class and I promised myself I'd read a book a day. I didn't do that. But I read 700 books in seven years and they were all psychology, physiology, anything that could improve the quality of life. And so because I was feeding my mind so much, I think that really gave it. The other part was I just love people 
And so, you know, I love my brother and sister to start with. I just want to help them. But by the time I was in high school, I, w- I had so many answers. I was Mr. Solution. You had a problem, I had the solution. Especially if you're a girl, I was highly motivated to help you yeah. get over that stupid boy in your life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm sure you were. Now, I have such strong memories as a kid watching your infomercials on TV. Yeah. That's how for- I first got introduced to you. That's yeah. Brian's way of reminding us how young he is. <laughs> I'm not so young. I'm practically middle-aged now. But- practically. <laughs> but, th- but the point point is, I think a lot of people who may have gotten introduced to you that way don't know that you've become this advisor to CEOs like Mark Benioff and Paul Tudor Jones, that you've advised Richard Branson, Steve Wynn, Serena Williams, Pat Riley, on and on. Yeah. How has your career kind of gone from, you know, TV self-improvement guru to advisor to the CEO stars? Well, I was always, even early in my life, quite frankly, I was a young kid, but I had uh, unique insights because I'd loaded my brain. You know, I'd gone for so many answers that I had them. I didn't have all the life experience yet, but I had this incredible passion to help people. And so it allowed me at an early age, I was turning around, you know, when I was, gosh, how old was I? I was 20, let's see, I'll be 18, 19, you know, 19, 20 years old. I was turning around Olympic athletes, 24. I turned around Andre Agassi when he'd been number one and dropped to 29 and got him back to number one. And he gave me enormous credit. Maybe too much, maybe not. <laughs> but I helped him turn around. <laughs> either way, you're and, grateful. Yeah, either way, I'm grateful. And then, you know, when I got to the president, Clinton at that stage, and Mother Teresa and Nelson Mandela, the game changed. Name dropper. Yeah, no, I am name dropping because they were just such incredible, <laughs> incredible human beings that I got the privilege to coach. I was pinching myself, but I also wasn't stupid enough to only coach them. I was learning from them. So for 40 years, I've not just been coaching others thinking I got all the answers. I've been sucking the juice out of the brains of the smartest people I can find and most heartfelt people I could find doing the same thing I did with the financial. You know, I, I said, if I want to really, I've taught this for years, but I was so angry what happened in 2008 and that no one paid a price for it that by 2010, I said, I got to use my skill. I've got, I have this unique gift. I've coached Paul Tudor Jones for, at that point, I think 20 years, it's been 24 years now. He's one of the leading investment managers He in went to UVA with me, and I Did asked really? him after, uh, many years after we graduated, hey, Paul, where were you when I was at UVA? Thinking, you know, that would have been a nice person to hook up with, if you know what I'm saying. And he <laughs> said, right he reasons. said to me, yeah. I was probably drunk. And I said, no wonder we didn't meet. But anyway, continue. <laughs> well, Paul, as you know, is a gift to this country and a gift to this city, for sure, with Robin Hood and all that he's done. And I've learned so much from him. But but that's really what I've tried to do along the way, is I've tried to learn by other people's experiences. Because, you know, in business, other people's money is leverage. I think what's much more valuable than other people's money is other people's experience when that other person's experience is dynamic and extraordinary. You that's know? wild. So really in helping them, they're helping you. Well, it's kind of I tell a them win-win. All the time. They, they all talk about Tony changed my life, saved my life. You know, you bring Mark Benioff, one of my dearest friends. And I can remember Mark coming up to me after attending three seminars in a row. He's hard to miss. He's standing in the front row. He's as big as I am, right? He comes up and shakes my hand. He goes, this is my third seminar. I said, yeah, I know. <laughs> he says, "He goes, you just convinced me. You finally pushed me over the edge. You know, he says, I'm, I'm leaving my job, and I'm going to start this new company called Salesforce.com, and we're going to change the business world, and you're going to remember, and you're going to come on the journey with me. And he goes, and he, I'll never forget, he looked at me. He goes, mark my words. We're going to do $100 million in business. Of course, he's going to do $10 billion this year, right? So, but so it's, it's been a fun journey to but, see those but things. We, but, I, but he says, he, he, this is my favorite quote because it, it certainly serves me. He goes around and tells everybody, Salesforce wouldn't exist if it wasn't for Tony Robbins. That, that's bullshit, but I really like that he says it. But I think what people may have trouble understanding is, you know, you're sitting down with President Bill Clinton during the height or the depths of the Lewinsky scandal. Yes. 
and and he's looking to you for advice. What can you tell him that he doesn't already know? The truth. Um, I was with Peter Guber. I don't know if you know Peter owns the Dodgers and the Golden State Warriors. And Didn't a dear he used to be mine. married to Barbara Streisand? No, but uh, his, his partner, partner dated John her. Peter. Yeah, John oh, Peter. Sorry. Yeah, okay. Sorry. Confused the two. We don't want to spread that rumor. Okay. <laughs> he could have in trouble as well. But with, I was at Peter's house. I was used to spend every Christmas with him and Aspen. And he calls me and says, the president's on the line. I said, what? So I got on the line. The president said, you know, I've had 10 people tell me that right now I'm going through a tough time. You're the right guy. Would you come to Camp David and spend the weekend and talk with me? And I said, I can't come for the weekend. I come for the day. Cause it's a holiday. I've got to be with my family. But I said, I just want you to know I'm not a fan. <laughs> and Peter, Ouch. I never get Peter's face. I said, I'm completely respectful. It would be a privilege to serve you. But if you're looking for someone who's going to tell you what you want to hear, I'm the wrong guy. And there's this long pause. And then President Clinton said, I like that. I'm looking for something. I'm not looking to be told what I believe. I said, great, then I'm happy to come. And I hung up the phone and Peter said, you just told the President of the United States you're not his fan. After we invited you to come, what the hell's the matter with you? <laughs> so I went and met the President and developed a real great friendship. But I can remember after the blue dress, we were in Aspen together and going down the Red Mountain, if you know that area, you know, and it's snowy and there's, it's surreal. You know, the President's motorcade in the middle of the night going down this icy mountaintop. And he said to me, he goes, he said, you know, God, I'd run again if I could. And I was like, dude, if I were you, I'd get the hell out of Dodge. <laughs> you know, I was teasing him. And he goes, no, Tony, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? I'm 50 or 51, whatever he was at the time. And uh, it's kind of crazy now because I just saw him last weekend. And just to see what he's done with his life, I know he's obviously massively disappointed what happened in the election. But to see what he's done out of office is truly inspiring. It's inspiring that you can't imagine. But to address what you said, I was 31 and I'm advising the president of the United States. It's kind of trippy. I'm, you know, a deer went running by. It's in the middle of the snow and the president's telling me how bad the media is. It's so funny. You, know, so you tell me at that time and they don't listen. And, you know, he's the first president that doesn't have an external enemy. So now everybody's turning internally was his view. And I remember thinking, this guy's president of the United States and he's whining. <laughs> and it's like, I guess we all whine at times and I got to figure out what to do to help this man. So what did started you, a long-term relationship. Well, well I don't talk about what I do with people unless they talk about it publicly. So the thing I can tell you is one day, one of the more interesting calls I got, he called me one day, I was at my office, people page me, and I get on the phone and he says, they're going to impeach me in the morning, what should I do? And I'm like, <laughs> first, could you have called me sooner? Just <laughs> tomorrow morning, right? Uh, and I said, that's the wrong question. And the question you got to ask is, what do you really want? Because what to do is based on the outcome you're after. If you want to stay in office, do nothing because the Senate's not going to impeach you. Easy for me to say. I'm not the president under pressure. But you know as well as I do they're not going to impeach you. I said, so you can do nothing. If you want to be respected, then by the American people, by children, by parents, then I said, I know you're not going to put yourself – you're a lawyer. You're not going to put yourself in jail. But you've got to communicate with more clarity about what's really going on and take responsibility for the things that were a mess up. And I had this moment where he said, you're so right. You're so right. So I'm so glad I called you. He said, I'll call you back. I'm going to call you back in 45 minutes. And I thought, holy shit, I influenced the president moving the right direction, right? <laughs> what I consider the right direction. And then his secretary called me about 30 minutes later. He's still in with the group, but he wants you to know he's focused on it. And about three hours, she called another time. And four hours later, he was standing with all the Democrats, you know, and they're saying, you know, this is all bullshit and we're going to fight this thing. But so I've had some wild rides. I've had a chance to sit down with Mr. Gorbachev, you know, right after, you know, he was taken out of office and spend time and bring him. I've, I've had a ticket to history and it's been an incredible privilege and I've learned so much. And I try to take that and make it practical for the average person so they can improve their life or 
you know, the leader that calls when it's time to inter- intervene. Just it, on the on the President Clinton front, you you got to know Hillary Clinton well yes, as I well. Did. Yeah. Have you have and you I know advised President her Trump and, as well? <laughs> at, yeah, well, we'll get to that in a moment. But <laughs> one of the will. things I thought about was Monica Lewinsky. I saw her not long ago in Los Angeles, yes. and I always felt that she had I mean I, I, I was gonna say she got the short end of the stick and then I just realized that's Maybe not a bad appropriate. choice of metaphor. I'm sorry Perhaps that I was I was metaphor. searching I was searching <laughs> Alec Baldwin and Donald Trump for uh-huh. a better, she was treated better unfairly, expression. Is she what was you're treated so unfairly and I you know and and so villainized and she was, tw- you know, I have a daughter who's 21 years old, Tony, yeah. and I think about- She fell in love with her boss. <laughs> she, well, you know, she's a kid. She's she a college a kid. girl. Yeah. And, and I she felt like she was, she made a mistake, but also taken advantage of in a very serious way. Did you ever think about her or reaching out to her? Actually, um, I reach out all the time when somebody's there. Like I reached out to Tiger Woods. Actually, probably a dozen people reached out for me to Tiger Woods, but he got in a motor's like, I don't want to help, and he didn't do it. So- um, as far as her, I didn't reach out to her directly, but I always let people know that I'm available. And I work with people on both sides of the aisle. I'm an independent personally. I work with whoever I think is a great leader. Um, but, you know, she's the kind of person, if you know her and want to invite her, I'm doing an event. I think she's based in L.A. now, isn't she? Or yes. Yeah. I, yeah. If she wants to come, I'm doing one for 10,000 people in two weeks. And she could come as our guest and it would blow her mind. I can promise you that. So if, she want, if you want to invite her as my guest, we'll do it. But it's interesting. You're a psychology expert. You're clearly really great at leadership coaching, but you never went to college. There's no formal training for this. Yes. You said you've learned from the people with whom you've had these discussions, but what do you think you offer? What is the value add when somebody's sitting across the table from you besides telling them the truth? Well, I'm, I've spent 40 years now at this stage uh, where I've gotten the call and I've got to produce the result now. Serena Williams is melting down on national television. What do I do? She's gone through all these problems. Turn around right now. Um, you know, kid is suicidal. Knock on wood. I've never lost one suicide in 40 years out of thousands. So my whole approach has been, how do I just really deliver results for people in whatever area it is, whether it be sports or it be business. And, you know, I've been obsessed with finding principles that are the best principles from, fi- you know, like somebody's been together 25 years and they're still passionate for each other, not just hanging out. They're not lucky. They do things differently than other people. If you're fit and you've stayed fit for 30 years, you're not lucky. You're doing something different. If you're financially set and you've started with nothing and you built to that, you're not lucky. You did something different. So I codify what that difference is, but then I put it into a delivery system that's so enjoyable that you love while you're learning. And so as a result, you tend to really apply it because there's more emotion to it. You know, information without emotion is not retained. If I said, do you remember where you were on 9-11? Everybody in this country, in fact, most countries know where they were when they heard it. They can describe where they were, who was around them, what they saw. But I ask you where you were on 8-11, you have no clue because information without emotion is not retained. What I do is I put people in states, psychological, emotional states, where what they learn, they feel it, they embed it, they experience it, and they live it. And because they live it, they get results. And then that's grown my brand and reputation for 40 years. You're also almost telepathic. You know, I watched the documentary. And when you have a huge crowd of people, you can almost – you do. You can feel them. You can zero in on the person who really seems to need your help. It's almost like the Long Island medium. (laughs) <laughs> with, with shorter nails. How do you do that? How do you do that? Well, I'm extremely empathetic. And, and if you know anything about the human brain, 
uh, we have these things called mirror neurons. Whereas if you're sitting there and you watch somebody going rowing by and you keep watching them, your brain will actually start to do the rowing in your nervous system, right? And the more empathetic you are, the more your mirror neurons tend to turn on. So mine are highly developed for 40 years to enter someone's world rapidly, feel who they are. And then I have so many, you know, there's only so many patterns, right? There's, there's only so many ways. We're the only creatures on earth that can make ourselves angry with one thought, happy with another, pissed off with another, excited with another. And so I've studied the system of how the brain works. And so there are not unlimited differences. And so I know what to do. There's only so many patterns, but I do it different every time because it's more enjoyable. It's like a piece of art. When somebody stands up, it's done. I know it's done. Now let's just see how it shows up. And it'll be different every time. Now, not to be a bitchy skeptic. Go for it. But, you know, I I would say that most of the people who come to your seminars, Tony, are searching for something, are needing something, are unhappy in some way, shape, or form, right? And and the one I was describing in the documentary was your six-day date with destiny yes. seminar. You've had, you know, you do dozens of them. I mean, how many have you done? I've done like 80 of them or 79 of them or something. Like you know, stage, through the yeah. course of your career. So isn't it safe to say that anybody in that audience is hurting? Well, no, not necessarily. You'd be surprised. People come from two extremes. They come because they're the best in the world at what they do. I mean, Pitbull's not hurting, you know, and he's, you know, I'm constantly interacting and supporting what he's doing, right? Uh, Hugh Jackman is not hurting. Serena's not hurting. So it's finding what people need and what people who come to see me are hungry. So you're right. Some are hungry because of pain. They had a birthday with a zero. They went through a divorce. Their kids have grown up. Um, you know, they have been at the same business for 20 years. They made $300 million and they're bored out of their mind. They want something more right? Someone wants something more, they're going to come see me. But then there's the whole class of people, which is a huge chunk, which are the best in the world that are looking for, they know one little distinction, you know, I'm going this direction, I make a 10 degree shift. And you take that out a month from now, six months from now, you have a different destination, different destiny. So I get people that are hungry. If you're in the lukewarm middle where you're not happy, but you're not unhappy enough to do anything about it, you're never going to come see me. But if you're the best in the world, you'll talk to the other best and they'll say, Tony did this for me and you'll call me. Or if you're the best or not the best, but you're really challenged, you're going to look for answers and I'm going to be one of those people eventually just because I've been in the culture doing this for 40 years. So If, if Brian to wanted to come, you are very expensive. If Brian wanted to come <laughs> and have a one-on-one session, Brian, I'd like to talk to you about maybe getting together with Tony. I'm kidding. I think he I'm would kidding. help me. Actually, I, I, I would I like to get it. together with Tony, but he's too expensive and I'm too cheap. <laughs> well, we should talk about this because some you of your clients- You charge a million dollars and then a, and a percentage- of whatever they're they... upside in their business, yeah. Jeez, Louise, no wonder you're feeding so many hungry people. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can only coach so many people one on one to give you a great. I used to do How seven. How many people do you? I used to do my magnificent seven, and then I stopped doing it because the demands are just so high, and I have to, you know, I want to over deliver always, and I just not enough hours in the day. So now I do two, sometimes three at a time max. But Paul Tudor's been one of my clients for you know twenty four years, so that's like twenty four million dollars. Well, <laughs> maybe yeah, yeah, maybe yeah, it was yeah. more. Well, I was going to say in a piece well. of the action, but he's but he's also made billions and billions of dollars. I mean, I, several times along the way, I've said to him, "Look, Paul, I said we're such dear friends. I said I don't need this for you anymore. I know what you're going to." do when you're going to do it. You knew it too. And he looks at me and says, are you kidding me? You're my insurance policy. Just knowing you're going to show up. I do all this stuff. You know? I knew I should have so. dated him in college. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk to you about leadership and our fearless leader, or I don't know, is that the right way to describe Donald Trump these days? We'll hear from Tony Robbins about Donald Trump right after this.
The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. We're back with Tony Robbins, who has, I think you're the male Brenda Vaccaro. You've got such a raspy voice. <laughs> is it? Is it always so? Of course, a lot of our listeners won't remember Brenda Vaccaro. She did a Tampax commercial, and well, she was an actress. Boy, I'm being compared to a Tampax commercial. <laughs> no, I feel really, But you have a really... very raspy voice. I think it's important to know the facts about tampons, to use them intelligently, and to know what you're doing. Let me tell you why I like Playtex best. Um, yes, because I speak 50 hours at a is time. Is that why it's so raspy? Yeah, I actually went to a... a expert at Harvard who's worked with Aerosmith and all these guys. He's probably the best expert in the country. I'll never forget. He has this, he asked me how often I speak and I told him he thought I was making it up. He goes, no one speaks for 12 hours. No one will sit through 12 hours. I said, well, no, I get 10,000 people at a time to do it. So he then puts me under the scope and he literally says, I got the thing down my throat. I can't speak. And he's like, no, no. He leaves the room with a thing in my throat. I'm trying to say something. He walks in with three doctors five minutes later, and they all stare, no, no. And I'm what? Like, That's when you know it's good, yeah. Yeah, so finally they pull it out. I'm like, what's the no? He goes, your, um, your what do you call it, vocal cords are supposed to be the thickness of your lips. Yours are thinner than this piece of paper. He said, there's no way you should be able to actually speak. It should be impossible for you to speak. But he said, you've done something that my 40 years as a medical doctor expert in this area would say is impossible. Science says impossible. You've wired your voice box, your false voice box to your normal voice box. And that's how you speak. He goes, it's almost that you couldn't speak and you like willed yourself to speak. And somehow the cells connected and gradually created this train that you now can speak. That's how I talk. Do you ever not talk? I mean, do you ever go for quiet periods? (laughs) (laughs) She says, why aren't you talking to me? What's wrong? (laughs) You're one of those. What's the matter? You came home, you talked to everybody else. You're not talking to me. Well, you probably get sick of it. I'm sure you want to just not talk. Well, there are times you certainly want to let your voice rest and so forth. No, I adore my wife. She's... We, I tease her mercilessly. She teases me mercilessly. No, I I like to speak when there's something to speak about. And when there's something to speak out, I'm, I'm not getting up there to talk for 50 hours because I want to talk for 50 hours because what I do is conditioning, right? You, you hear something once, you understand it. You hear it a couple times in different ways, you might be able to apply it. But if I get you where you're wired to do it, now you get results. I mean, you get results by changing conditioning. You don't get results by just getting a new insight. This was your, is your second wife, your current yes, wife. Yes, I, I was married for 14 years before that. I've been married 18 years on this one. And and so, what did you learn from your first marriage that's helped you in your, your how second? How to pick your partner? <laughs> no one tells you how to pick a partner. So she was a great lady, but we had so little in common. It was just chemistry, 
And then I fell in love with her children. She'd been married twice before me. I was her third husband, and she was 13 years my senior, 12 years my senior. So I was, if you can imagine, 24 and instantly had a 17-year-old son overnight, an 11-year-old. Oh, that's weird. So you were like seven years older than your stepson. That's correct. He was the Ashton Kutcher of his day. <laughs> he's, he's 50 and I'm 57. Wow. Yeah, to give you an idea, right? So, it's mind-boggling. So, so I grew up very quickly, um, but I didn't want to lose the kids' love. I fell so in love with them. She's a good human being, but you know, she'd be upset all the time that I was stopping to talk to people or help people. So how much older was she than you? 12, 12 years. 12 years. Yeah. So, but what the beauty is I end up with all my kids and my second youngest is my partner in several of my financial businesses, you know? And so it's a, it's a blast at this stage of my life that I got to experience all those stages simultaneously. They made me grow up and they, I think, increased my ability to help other people too. Well, let's, let's enough about your marriage. Let's talk about Donald Trump. Can we, Tony? <laughs> Speaking of things that weren't supposed to be possible, like your vocal cords, <laughs> President let's, Trump. So, so how well do you know Donald Trump? Uh, pretty well, enough that, uh, he's called me at various times. I gave him his first recently? big speech. Uh, no, not recently. He, I gave him his first big speech. I think he can might you be call a, him. Well, sure I can, but he's, uh, and he's just down the road from me. I can go visit him if I want to, because I live in Palm Beach for most of the time, a good portion of the time. But, um, you know, He's a very unique creature, as you well know, and I think that he's been reinforced for what you and I might call bad behavior, at least in communication style, and um, and he's now president of the United States, and those things are not being reinforced. But I think half the country sent him there because government is systemic. You take your time. You think everything through. It has consequences. He's pragmatic. I want to do this now, right now. And even if I make a mistake, then I'll correct the mistake and get it done, but I'm not going to take two years to do it. So I think— Is that pragmatic or impulsive? Well, you call it impulsive, but it's also pragmatic to look for an answer now. Everyone has a specialty in their brain. Some people are extremely empathetic, right? Empathetic people are always like, if you're in a meeting right now and we say we're going to do something, they're going, hey, wait a second, that'll make these people feel this way, and they're always worried about that person who's more pragmatic is like, they're going to feel that way. But if we don't do this, it's going to go under and everyone's going to get hurt. This is what we got to do right now. The systemic person's like, slow down. Let's think this through. Let's evaluate this. Let's take our time. And they might take a couple of years to do what the other person will do wrong in the first week. But the wrong one he does in the first week will get more done because they do it more often. And they, if they correct, they do it more often. Now, I don't know if he'll correct enough or not. But he clearly is not empathetic. Let's put it that way. That's not his <laughs> highest skill set. You think? Yeah. Well, the, the person in challenge. the last category, the president in the last category, sounds like Barack Obama. That's exactly right. Totally systemic. I mean, when you're talking about Barack Obama, he's thinking while he's talking. He's filtering every word. I watched him, you know, get up and give a speech to first graders, and he had two, uh, what do you call it? Teleprompters. Uh, teleprompters. Reading teleprompters to first graders. Like, come on. But then you have this other guy who just makes shit up as he's standing there. So we've gone from one extreme to the other. That's what people do in relationship, right? This didn't work. Let me throw my pendulum to the other side, which also often doesn't work in some people's minds. But I think um, I had a good conversation with uh, President Clinton last weekend, but I had an even better conversation related to this specifically a couple months ago with George W. Bush. And I was asking him, I said, you know, you've never attacked Barack Obama. I really respect that about you. And he goes, I'll tell you why, Tony. He goes, I'm not president of the United States. The people have spoken. I had my eight years. And whether I voted for the person or not doesn't matter. They're my president. They're your president. I, we got to help them succeed. They don't do it on their own. And he, I said, but what do you feel? He goes, well, you know, I wanted my brother to win. He said he obviously didn't. But he goes, this stuff that the world's over because Trump is crazy and insane. He goes, it's so exaggerated and it's quite, quite frankly infantile. He said, let's just be honest. He said, I used to think this too. When Nixon left office impeached, I thought he destroyed the presidency, destroyed the reputation of America, destroyed America. He goes, I was dead wrong. 
He said that was an infantile emotional response. Here's the truth. He said the office is bigger than the occupant. Why are so many people so nervous, trepidatious, scared out of their mind? Because we, as a culture, constantly reinforce fear and create tribalism. It's the new way in which we live since social media. Plus, today, we can self-fulfill. You can, you, you can just watch MSNBC all day long or Fox all day long, and you live in a different universe. Or Facebook and read you know, fake news. So people today don't want to be interrupted. I mean, in the financial industry, it's one of the biggest mistakes that people. It's called confirmation bias. You know, you go get everybody to confirm what you believe, and you go do that. Well, it's recipe for death. We're doing that here. We well, how, do we, how, how do we change that? You know, I, I mean, this is something we've talked about frequently. And my friend Nicole says people are looking for affirmation, not information. And But, you know, and there was a piece in the New York Times actually recently about how to get out of your bubble. And people are trying to encourage people to overlap. But, I mean, how, how, what's the solution, Tony well, first Robbins? You got, first, got to see the, what the problem is. And I believe the problem, and you can tell me if you agree or disagree, um, one of the problems clearly is that we are not using technology. Technology is now using us. Watch how people, where people's level of impatience is today. They're bam, bam, bam on their phone like this because it's not responding. It's going to a satellite. Give it a minute. I mean, my God, what the hell was the matter with you? And so you're used to in control every moment on the web. So I think it's a combination of technology and we have tolerated this as a culture. You get what you tolerate. As an individual, well, we get how, we tolerate it as a culture. We tolerate it, but how do you how do you change it? I mean, the only way it, it is so far down the line now. The only way it changes is the way anything changes historically. We throw our pendulums until we exhaust that, and sometimes that exhaustion goes for a period of you know a generation, ten or fifteen or twenty years. If you think about the winter seasons historically, I mean, if you grew up in the 1930s and 40s, came of age at that time, you lived very differently than you came of age in the 50s. Then if you came to in the 60s and 70s, a totally different generation than the 80s, 90s, 2000s. So I personally believe, and I'm, I'm guessing, no one knows for sure, I think we're going to throw our pendulum and we're going to get exhaust this like we exhaust anything and we'll eventually come back. How long will that take? I don't know. Will President Trump become a CEO who settles down and is able to do that or not? You know, we're six weeks into it. He's been reinforced for the behavior he had his entire life, and he's only for the first time having an interruption to that behavior. So we'll see. Well, regarding President Trump, you said Donald doesn't take coaching. He doesn't want coaching. I know a lot of Republicans who are really nervous, scared, even alarmed by some of the actions he's taken as president. The fact that he doesn't know what he doesn't know. And, he and that he seem t- has these tweet storms at, you know, 530 in the morning, making all these accusations that yeah. have no merit yeah. because he's been reading Breitbart news. Come on. And yeah. so I think the larger question is, can he learn from his mistakes and get bigger and better? Or yes. He's a smarter person than you might give him credit for. He's well-trained to be the way he is because he's been rewarded so often. But without the rewards, he's got the ability to learn. The question is, will he? And I can't answer that question for you. No one can. But I think um, the more we spend time on his tweets uh, and give it so much attention, you just reinforce the behavior. He's going to keep doing it. The more – put your fist up. If I go like this, what are you doing? Why are you pushing back? I didn't tell you to push back. Well, otherwise you're going to break my arm. He's a very strong guy. People can't oh, see this. Actually, let it, let it go. You'll see wish, it's, it's not going to break your arm. Okay. The more, moment you push on somebody, the more Tony and Brian. Because I just, I just told him put his fist out, and I pushed on it like with my fist, and he's pushing harder and harder. I didn't tell him to push back. I'm sitting across from the table from Superman here, and it's very hard not to push back a little bit. But think about that. Yeah. It's very hard for him not to push back. 
and very hard for the media not to push back. But you're more optimistic than many people. You think that he can grow and get better, but you've said that he doesn't take training or coaching. Well, at this stage, he's not, but that doesn't mean he won't. He's got four years, and you, we're all going to be with him four years whether you like him or not. So do you really want to spend the rest of your life bitching, complaining, whining about somebody's style of communicating? Um, you know, we have three branches of government. They balance each other out. He's going to pass some things you don't like. That's called life. He's going to not pass some things he wants to that you might like. <laughs> That's life. But, you know, we're we're living in a world where there's so much whining. It's just like, how about... Let's, where the issues are real, let's deal with them. But why not? Why has it got to be personal? It used to be in Congress. When Clinton was in office, guys would fight like hell on the floor and they'd go have a beer together. Now the problem is if you talk to the other side, you're evil, you're immoral. This is absurd. This is childlike behavior. But that's expanded to the nation as a whole. That's what I'm saying. And it's so, childlike right, behavior. But, but no, I mean, not just on Capitol Hill. I and mean, we often heard stories of Reagan and Tip O'Neill having a drink together in the Oval Office and fighting like hell in yeah, the halls of true. Congress. But w- what do you do about such a divided nation? I know this is the to- topic A on so many shows and I think around so many dinner tables all over the country. But these two Americas that are so at each other's throats 24-7, how, how do we come together? I mean, I know it's not going to be kumbaya, but no. at the same time, how do we dissipate this anger and vitriol that's just pulsing through society today? Well, it starts with the leaders and the leaders of both parties. Well, good are, luck with that. That's what I'm saying. That's the challenge. But eventually, we burn out. Eventually, if you look at history, whatever it is, whether it be anger, you get tired of being angry. Sadness, you get tired of being sadness. I just have, I'm just saying, why don't we get tired of it now? <laughs> Start to focus. <laughs> I'm tired on of things. it. Let's focus on what we can do instead of we can't. What's the secret to financial well being? It's not predicting the future. The secret is taking control of what you can control. There's many things you can't, and it's time to surrender to that and focus on what you can do. Otherwise, you're just, everybody's just whining. And it's like, what is it doing? Is it making anything better? Is it changing at all? No, you're just getting the habit of being pissed off all the time or fearful all the time. And a decision made from fear or a decision made from anger is almost always the wrong decision. If you were coaching President Trump today, what would you tell him? Your communication style is getting in the way of your substance. There's actually substance to what he's doing in many cases that some people agree. I mean, if you were to say, look, in Syria, we cannot vet that these people are who they say they are. So in these cases, until we can vet, we're going to do this for them. It'd be a different case. But when you talk about Muslims as if it's a religion that's wrong, um, then the style of communication gets a hold of anything. And the second thing is calling people idiots or going on you know, the internet at three in the morning and attacking everybody who has a different point of view makes it impossible to truly govern unless you're in control of everything. And Why do you think he does that? Oh, we're spending so much time on on him and why he does it. He does it because he's been conditioned to do it his whole life. He's a real estate guy that worked with very wealthy people. He figured a formula. He used debt. He maximized it and almost went bankrupt and then really scored on a large scale. And no matter what he said or did, he got reinforced, including with a TV show for 12 years. So he's been reinforced. Until new reinforcement happens, you won't see a change. That's how humans work. I want to ask you about leadership, you know, because I think some Americans, I I would say a lot of Americans feel there's a real dearth of leadership in this country. I would agree, unfortunately. Why why do you think it's so hard to find people that we trust and believe in and want to be in charge? Well, think about it. Today, if you and I live in in the world before the internet, 
and I'm not suggesting we go back and be the stupidest thing in the world. I don't but know. You, I, sometimes I think too. <laughs> oh, maybe, maybe in the moment. But if you really think about it before then, if you want to attack me, you're going to pay a consequence. You say something about verbally, you do something, and it used to be in the media, then you'd be sued. Today, with the internet, we all want to be significant. There's only two ways to be significant. Take big risks and try to achieve things, and you could fail, and if you fail, you feel like you're worthless, or tear everybody else down. Build the tallest building or tear everybody else down. Well, it's not hard to figure out what the majority of people do. There's no downside to tearing other people down on the web. There's no consequence. So our web behaviors and our technology conditioning has changed our culture to where we're no longer kind. I mean, obviously, there are plenty of kind people and there are kind communities. But if you asked, is the internet a kind place? The answer is, what would you say? Absolutely not. No. Having said that, most of my friends would never, ever write the kind of garbage that comes my way. I don't know, Brian, if you get that. Nobody cares enough. <laughs> but you know that that yeah. comes the way of people who maybe disagree with them yeah. or who are public figures. So, yes, I, I, I don't, you but know. But you I also think grew up in a different generation, right? You but were, my daughters would never do that, No, Tony. I agree with that. You're, you've, but you're, because you brought never. up in a different generation, you have different values, right? Look yes. at it. You're a race. So it's a value system. But right now, the, the, you can talk about values all you want, but then people look at this phone 150 times a day. That's the average 150 times a day. It's your outdoor brain. And whenever people look in there, they're getting a dopamine hit sometimes. Oh, this no, cool new are. thing. No, they are. They definitely are. So they're wired to keep doing this. And guess what? Like any other addiction, they're here all the time. This is a world I can control. You don't like me? I'll, I'll unfriend you. I'll let you go. We have created a selfish society where it's all about me. And it's really not about me. It's about the way I can frame myself with filters and pictures. You, know, you see people getting depressed, all the studies on Facebook now. And it's because they're not comparing their life to other people. They're comparing life to other people's fake lives. Right? So- I, I sound old talking about all this crap. No, now, so I, I, I agree but, with you. Well, I'm older than you yeah, are, yes, so that's but why. But this is very – I mean, what are practical things the that people can do? The practical things that we that... have to do is we've got to train people to enter a world where they live at their best and they're reinforced for it. I mean, look, let's be honest. All human beings have a 2 million-year-old brain, and that brain is not designed to make you happy. That brain is designed to make you survive. So it's a survival software. So what is it looking for? Anything that could hurt me. Well, there's not a saber-toothed tiger for you to fight or flight or freeze and hopefully not spot you. Now we place that with what are people thinking about me, as if it's life and death. Or do I have enough money? And let's be honest, in this country, if you are in poverty, and you know I care, I feed 100 million people a year. I don't want anybody in poverty. But if you're in poverty in the United States, you're not the 99%. That is the biggest bullshit on the planet. You're the 1% of the planet. 75% of the planet, three-quarters of the planet, lives on $2.50 a day, $900 a year. So we're living in a society where we've lost track. It's going to balance. Will it balance as fast as you and I want? No. My job is to educate people. I was there. I had 10,000 people in San Francisco and San Jose the day after the election. San Francisco. So you know what, what that was, right? Big pro Trump That was crowd. a happy crowd. Yeah, were, they sure. were depressed. And I just, I went after them and I said, come on, grow up. What the hell are you doing? If you can't take disappointment and disappointment drives you into this place, how are you going to deal with your own life? You're focused on Trump because you're not mastering your own life. But I think there are people who are upset about Trump for pretty selfless reasons, actually. People whose taxes are going to be cut by Trump, people who are personally going to benefit from Trump have said, I don't like the example he sets for my children. I agree 100%. I don't like the, the cuts that he's going to make to programs well, that's what that I don't help. Let's just agree on that. I agree on it. 
So what are you going to do about it? Well, that's that's the right but question. I mean, but, no, but no, I that's think... right. So answer my question. What are you going to do about it? I don't have an answer to that question. Continuing to complain about it isn't changing a thing. We can continue to make ourselves miserable if you like to continue for an hour. <laughs> no, I, I personally don't would rather, do that. I'd rather do this. I'd rather say arguing with reality is stupid. Sometimes reality does not reward what you want. So then what should you do? Focus on what you can do and what you can control because otherwise you're just going to be upset all the no, time. No, I agree. And I think that a lot of people – I don't know. Sometimes I feel like I get too wrapped up in well, this. Well, I don't think it's whining for journalists to point out these important issues. And I don't to think it's whining for them to do that. President but to, to cry when their when their oh, candidate doesn't win. No, that, that's terrible. That's on. very unprofessional. And journalists shouldn't be biased in that way. And I think but we can all today. agree on that. Well, not all of them are. Not I would all argue of them are, that but the journalist across the table from me is not. I would argue, but. but well, everybody, journalists today, everybody are journalists has. Today, are journalists today pure reporters as they once were? Is it pure journalism? I think many of them are. I do. I think by and large, journalists tend to be more progressive and right. and, and 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 care about progressive issues more. I think they're generally certainly more socially more liberal. I, yeah, more. They went, more they I, went to I, college and they had a professor who was liberal, not conservative, because that's who goes and teaches. And so we keep fulfilling that that aspect. Personally, I think, and I'm not for the agenda of President uh, Trump. But I personally think it starts even at the colleges. We need to have more diversity in these colleges. When you look at Berkeley, which is supposed to be the, the home of free speech, and I don't even see it. I just saw the pictures today, but I remember that idiot from Breitbart. I can't think of his name. I don't support him. But to blow shit up, to create fires, to punch people in the face so that someone can't speak. Yeah, I don't know how you call From the exact group of people that supposedly started the free speech movement. Are you not embarrassed by that? I'm embarrassed. I don't know how you call yourself a liberal and oppose the First Amendment and <laughs> say, I'm not, e- I'm not going to even expose myself to ideas with which I disagree. But speaking of powerful ideas, before we let you go, <laughs> how is that for an awkward segue? Are we going to talk about my book? We should yes, talk about your, about your book. That's what I'm trying to do. We're talking about it. Well, how many books have you written, Tony? Oh, uh, what is this now? Five, I guess. Six, I guess. Wow. God, yeah. You're a busy guy. So this one is Unshakable, your financial freedom playbook. And this is the result of all your conversations with all these financial experts. Yeah. Well, not just experts, but every one of them was a self-made millionaire. And then I went Nobel Prize winner. I just brought in people of the best on earth. But the reason I wrote this book is I actually had – I do an annual event where I bring in, you know, six self-made billionaires, some of the best financial people in the world. And I have them work with my biggest donors, you know, for feeding people. And I, a year ago, I had uh, the former Fed chair, Alan Greenspan, on, 19 years, most powerful man in finance, four presidents, right? I get to spend five hours with him, three hours picking his brain, which is what I do best. I dig in, find his psychology and his psyche and how things have shifted. And then two hours in front of the audience. And the last thing we talked about, negative interest rates. And, you know, I've never seen this in 5,000 years of banking history and what the Feds are doing. And this really passionate conversation. So I said, okay, you're back made the head Fed today. You're the chairman of the Fed again. What's the first thing you do? And the whole room leaned in to hear, and he paused, and he paused, and they leaned in, and he went, resign. I would resign. <laughs> so it's like, when the Fed chair says he resigned, you know we're in trouble. So look, we're eight years into this bull market. It's the second largest one in history. It doesn't take a genius to figure out there's going to be a crash. It's not negative. It's just a fact. It always has been. It's historic. But what I wanted to do is I wanted to free people of the fear and show them how to utilize this, both protect themselves and take advantage. Because if you're a baby boomer and you started too late, I know it's counterintuitive, but 
the next crash is your chance to leapfrog from where you are financially to where you want to be. If you're a millennial and you got all this, you know, debt, God forbid, from the, you know, the college education you got, you think you'll never get out of it. The crash is the leveler. It's like if I told you your favorite car was, I don't know, Ferrari, and you said to me, I want a Ferrari, and I said, I know a place you can get them 50% off, you'd be out of your mind. But when the stock market goes 50% off, people freak out. People have the opposite instinct, which is to, to buy buy high and sell low. And Warren Buffett's saying- I was going to say Warren Buffett yeah, says- What do right? you tell everybody during that time? This is the greatest opportunity of your life. Buy anything you can. Be greedy when others are fearful and fearful when, when others, others are greedy. greedy. You yeah. got it. Absolutely. So what, I, what people don't know, the reason they're not in the market, A, they think they have no money. And so I show them what to do and how to actually just take a small percentage and grow it because they just don't realize what compounding can do. You know, I give an example in the book of a young man um, based on a friend of mine. His father convinced him at 19 that he's going to take $300 a month and save it, which sounds like a lot. But once you automate it, you don't even think about it. It just happens. You don't see it. And he did it just till he was 29, right? So nine years. Total amount of money in was like 4000 a year. So it's like $35,000. He left it in the market. And the market over the last 30 years has grown 10.25. But I showed you, even if it had only grown at 8%, so even less, he ends up taking that $35,000, never putting another dime, and at 65, he's got just under a million dollars. His bet, it doesn't take a lot of money to be wealthy. It takes time and, and consistency. His best friend gets the idea when he finishes to start at 29, and he invests his $300 a month his entire life to 65, and he never catches up because it's time that gives you the advantage. You don't need a lot of money. How many great athletes, how many great movie stars, actresses, actors have you seen that made more money than God, and now they're totally broke? I mean, you look at 50 Cent, you know, he, he got a $100 million tip on vitamin water. He made, I think it was 400 million bucks, if I remember correctly, and he's bankrupt. He bought Tyson's home, and Tyson went bankrupt, who made a half a billion dollars. Right now, I don't know if it's true, but I read the other day that, uh, what's Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, Johnny Depp. He made three quarters of a billion dollars, $750 million, and they're talking about him going bankrupt right now because he spent 30000 a month on wine, and he spent $3 million to take Hunter Thompson, burn his body, and blow it in a cannon into space. <laughs> He's just you know, like... it's hard to live a nice lifestyle on three quarters of a billion dollars. I mean, you got to economize. Yeah. Unless you make money your slave, you're the slave to money. And unless you learn how to make money while you're asleep, it's not going to happen. And every American can do it. And it's not a full-time job. It requires you to get in the game, but you got to know what the rules are so you don't get taken advantage of. Because truthfully, uh, the level of deceit that happens in this industry is greater than almost any industry in the world because there just isn't transparency. And people use language that makes people feel like they don't know what they're doing. And so they just give up. And then they beat you to death with fees you don't even know you're paying. So this is this book is really for everyone, not for wealthy people. It's oh, for no, no, anybody. No. no, this is a book designed to show you how you can leapfrog where you are, where you want to be, and to make sure, A, you're protected during the next time, but more importantly, that you take advantage of what the next time will provide for you. I mean, I'll give you an example. Why are people afraid in the market? It's going to crash. Well, every day you hear another, we broke another record. You hear the Dow's up another one. Well, if you look over the history of the stock market, on average, we, break, we have a new record once a month. Now, sometimes that happens seven in a week, but that's the average that we've had over time. But here's what's really interesting. Every year we have a correction. It's like if you're going to be stressed and you're 40 years old and you're going to live to 85, you're going to have 45 more corrections to go through. You're going to be stressed the rest of your freaking life. Remember last January, the worst January in history? $2.2 trillion melted down. But where did we end up the year? Record-breaking. 
80% of those corrections, and a correction for those listening is anytime you drop more than 10% up to 20 from where the peak was, that's called a correction. 80% of them don't become a crash. They don't become that meltdown that everybody's afraid of at the deepest level. And so you literally, you, you see 14% dropout and it bounces right back unless you sell. I always tell people the market never took a dime from anyone. You did. Now watch this. What about those big bear markets? They last a year on average. They cost us an average of 33% if you sell. If you don't sell, it doesn't cost you anything. And here's what people have to know. Every single bear market, every crash in the history of the United States for two centuries plus has been followed by a bull market that goes crazy. If you remember 2008, we lost, you know, from peak to trough, briefly 50%. It was really around 35 for most people. But we went, we made 69% starting on March 9th, coming up a few days from now is the anniversary with the next 12 months. I can show that to you every time in history of the United States. That's why Warren Buffett says you don't want to bet against the United States. The last two centuries is the dumbest bet you could possibly make. You want to be in the market, not sell. And when the market crashes, you want to buy things for a discount. Well, and your message, which is a very powerful one and one that I think a lot of people need to hear, is you can't market time. You brought to bear a great stat in the book about how most of your gains happen during these days. Yes. I forget. It's like a dozen days oh, let me tell over you, the course of a year. You hit the hot button. Check this out. So people are trying to time the market. Oh my God, the market's too high. How long have you been hearing that for? Eight years. The market's gone up 250%. How have we heard that since, since Trump got in office? We're up 11, 12% right now. In the two Trump and a half bump. Months. The Trump bump. But is it going to correct? Of course it's going to correct. It's going to happen. But here's what you got to know. Warren Buffett said to me, Tony, those guys on CNBC, those market forecasters, they're only there, he said, to make fortune tellers look good because no one can predict the market. But here's what you can predict. There was a study done over the last 20 years by both J.P. Morgan and by uh, Charles Schwab. They did it independently. What they found is over 30 years, we've done 10.28%, which is amazing. Over the last 20 years, we've done 8.2%. But if you missed just 10 of the best trading days in 20 years, now what are your chances of knowing which days those are going to be? So you're out because you think things are overvalued, whatever the case may be. You're scared. If you miss the top trading 10 trading days, that's all in 20 years. You move from having an 8% return where you're doubling your money every nine years and get wealthy doing that. It drops down to 4.5%, almost in half. If you miss the top 20 days, you only make 2%. You might as well have been in bonds. And if you miss the top 30 days, one and a half days for 20 years, that's all, one half days each year for 20 years, you lose money. See, the most dangerous thing is not getting in the market. You got to be in the market because it's given the highest rates of return for the last two centuries. It has the most volatility, which is why you have to have diversification like I show you. But it is the opportunity of your lifetime to be in there and be unlike other people and be unshakable. All right. Before we go, I, I feel like I, uh, watching Tony, he's got so much energy. <laughs> Do you drink a lot of coffee? I don't drink any coffee whatsoever. I'm like, I'll Do you have imagine me on having. coffee? It would be scary. Really? No. So, so, but you do have some kind of funky personal routine. <laughs> funky. You, 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 you jump into this cold pool yes, every do. morning I when do. you're at one of your homes, yes. plural. That's 57 degrees. The water. Yeah, yeah 57, 56. What up with that? Um, <laughs> it, it stimulates. It's done all over the world, but especially in the northern uh, countries. To go hot, cold stimulates the lymph system, the blood flow, it cleans your system out. But I also do it for another reason, which is, you know, most people don't do what they need to do. They know what they should do, but they don't do it. You know, they know what to do, but they don't do what they know, right? So I, what I did early on is I said, I want to train my brain that when I say we're doing this, I'm not negotiating with myself. Well, I'll do it tomorrow. Uh, 
So I get in every day for one reason, to teach my brain when I say we do it, we do it. And now it does. If I want to go make the run, I want to do the business thing, there's no hesitancy in me. There's no negotiation within myself. And that has enormous power if you want to build things and create things and have an impact with people. You also do breathing exercises? I do. I start every day with my first 10 minutes is a form of meditation, sort of, meditation-like. Here's what I do. I do a radical change in my body because changing your breathing changes the way the brain works. If you study, you know, uh, yoga or, or various esoteric sciences, the breath is like the string on a kite. The, the, the kite is your brain. If you change the breath, you change how the brain becomes engaged. So I do this radical explosive breathing. I do three sets of 30, and that changes my state. Can I, I hear what up. radical explosive breathing sounds like? <laughs> a little louder than that, harder than that, and I do 30 of them, right? I do 30, pause, 30, pause, 30, pause. Then I spend 10 minutes, and I do three minutes where all I focus on are three things I'm grateful for. Now, why? That sounds mamby-pamby, gratitude, who cares? The two emotions that screw us up, and you see them in our society right now, are anger and fear. They'll screw up your business. They'll screw up your intimate relationship. They'll screw up your health. And their antidote is gratitude. You can't be grateful and angry simultaneously. It's impossible. So if you cultivate that gratitude, there's no anger there. You can't be fearful and grateful simultaneously. So by taking three minutes to start every day and bringing that up in my nervous system with real stuff, not positive thinking, I'm so happy and making it up a bunch of affirmations, I think about real situations and I make one really simple, like the wind on my face, my child's smile. Because if you only train yourself to respond to big things, then you don't enjoy life. It's kind of like the astronauts that went to the moon came back. What do you do when you're 35? You went to the moon, you shook the president's hand, you tapered top, you know, the ticker tape parade. What the hell do you do now? And most of them got addicted to drugs and alcohol because they found adventure only in a smile. They didn't find it in, in or, excuse me, I'm going to the moon versus a smile. So I do three minutes and I focus on it and I feel it like I'm there and it makes my nervous system go. Then I do three minutes of prayer and kind of blessings, if you would, to my children, my family, my coworkers, my associates, and people I meet on the street. And then my last three minutes- Will you put us in there tomorrow? I promise I will. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But then my last three minutes is kind of my three three to five to thrive. I think of three things that I really want to accomplish that matter to me and I see it and feel it is done and kind of celebrate it. And what that does is it sets up your brain where you're grateful instead of reactionary. You're loving to the people around you and yourself, the blessing side, and you're clear on what it is you really want to make happen and you're certain it's going to happen. And it takes 10 minutes. And honestly, I'll usually go 15 or 20 because it feels so good, but there's no excuse not to do it because you know if you don't have 10 minutes, you don't got a life. And so that's what I do. That and my jumping in that freezing water are my and two And you jump beginnings. on a trampoline too, we should add. Yeah, no, I, I, use, I lymphasize. I use a rebounder. Uh, lymphasize. Yeah, it moves your lymph. The lymph, you know, the heart, the blood is moved by the heart, but the lymph has very little that can move it around other than explosive breath, strong breathing, and movement, exercise. So the lymph is critical. It's the detoxification system of your body. So bouncing on a rebounder allows you to move the lymph, but it doesn't, when you hit the ground, you don't have the impact. That's part of the battle. I don't know about you, Brian, but I'm going to do those three things tomorrow. And Well, I, I don't have a trampoline. But see you're if they help. You're going to plunge into a 57-degree oh, pool? Oh, I'm not going to do that either. But I am <laughs> so what are you going to do? Think I'm about people do, you're grateful I'm for? I'm going to do the gratitude thing, which my husband says I should do more. Uh-huh. So you're going to do I'm kind of the Wimpy version of his routine? Yes, I am. And the prayers. <laughs> uh-huh. And, that's nice. And then the intentions. Yeah, the three things you're committed to, right? But seeing it as done, feeling it as done. It's really simplistic. But it, it, when you do it every day— it, it reinforces that behavior. Well, you also just got to think about, we all do what we've trained our nervous system to do. If you bitch all the time, you're going to bitch all the time. If you're grateful all the time, you're grateful all the time. If you're, f- We all know people that are funny no matter what happens, right? You know, and you, the, how do they do it? They've wired themselves to do it. So why not wire yourself 
for higher emotional states that'll affect your family and your businesses and your coworkers and associates as opposed to just showing up and hoping you feel good with an environment that if you turn on anything, if this thing's following you, you're probably going to be unhappy because all I got to do is open this up and there'll be 20 things about Trump and 20 things about Let the Democrats. Let the record show and... he's holding his iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> I feel record like I, if I do 10% of what Tony Robbins does, I will be a hugely successful person. <laughs> That's for damn well, sure. I mean, are. you're amazing, really. You guys are sweet. No, we all we all have our gifts and I, I'm just clear what my mission is. I think you're clear about yours and I don't know you well enough to know, but it sounds like you found a partner here. In, Still in figuring crime. it out. <laughs> <laughs> no, Brian. Brian is clear as well. That's wonderful. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. People pick up the book because we're going to feed another 100 million people. That every book will feed 50 people. So all the profits are going to these charities. Yeah. Last time we sold a million copies in hardback of Money Master the Game, so we fed 50 million people. But I'm donating it regardless, even if you don't buy the book. But get the book for yourself. If people are interested in learning more about your charity and about what you do to feed people all over the globe, how do they do that? They can go to feedingamerica.org and you can look up the Tony Robbins. It's 100 million more, they call it, because every year we do another 100 million. It's a billion person challenge, basically. Or you can go to my website at tonyrobbins.com. So fun to have you, Tony. Thanks so much. So nice to see you again. Our thanks, as always, to Gianna Palmer for producing the show, to Jared O'Connell for mixing and engineering it. Thanks also to our social media guru, Allison Bresnick, and to Emily Bina for her part in producing the show, to Nora Ritchie for additional editorial assistance, and Mark Phillips, thank you, as always, for our great theme music. Katie Couric, Mitch Semmel, and I are the executive producers of the show. And remember, you can email us at comments at currentpodcast.com. Please keep it clean, people. Or find me on social media, too. Keep that nice, please. I'm at Katie Couric on Twitter and Instagram and katie.couric on Snapchat. Best of all, you can rate and review us on iTunes. We would really appreciate a review, nicer ones, if, if you know. Yeah, the bad reviews you can keep to yourselves. <laughs> yeah. So don't forget to subscribe as well. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Plus. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more.